Welcome, and thank you for joining us for this Neuroscience CME podcast. This continuing education activity is co-sponsored by Indiana University School of Medicine and by CME Outfitters, LLC. The CME CE certified activity is supported by educational grants from Bristol-Myers Squibb Company, Inatsuka America Pharmaceutical Incorporated, and from Pfizer Incorporated. This activity is titled Applying Performance Measures Through a Chronic Disease Model to Optimize Treatment of Bipolar Mania. Our distinguished faculty for this activity are Dr. Roger S. McIntyre, Dr. Leslie Citrome, and Dr. Gary S. Sachs. Dr. McIntyre, our moderator for today's activity, is head of the Mood Disorders Psychopharmacology Unit at the University Health Network and Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Pharmacology at the University of Toronto in Toronto, Ontario. Dr. McIntyre has disclosed that he receives grant and research support from Eli Lilly and Company, Janssen Ortho Incorporated, National Alliance for Research on Schizophrenia and Depression, Shire Pharmaceuticals, and the Stanley Medical Research Institute. He serves on the advisory boards of AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals LP, BioVail Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, Bristol-Myers Squibb Company, Eli Lilly and Company, France Foundation, GlaxoSmithKline, Janssen Ortho Incorporated, H. Lundbeck AS, Organon, Pfizer Incorporated, Shearing Plow Corporation, Shire Pharmaceuticals, and Solvay Wyeth. He serves on the speakers' bureaus of AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals LP, BioVail Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, Eli Lilly and Company, Janssen Ortho Incorporated, H. Lundbeck AS, Shearing Plow Corporation, and Wyeth Pharmaceuticals. Dr. Citrome is a professor in the Department of Psychiatry at NYU Medical Center in New York, New York. Dr. Citrome has disclosed that he receives payments to institution for research from AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals LP, Lilly USA LLC, Pfizer Incorporated, and Janssen LP. He serves on the speaker's bureaus of AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals LP, Lilly USA LLC, Merck and Company Incorporated, and Pfizer Incorporated. He serves as a consultant to Lilly USA LLC, GlaxoSmithKline, Janssen LP, Merck and Company Incorporated, and Pfizer Incorporated. Dr. Sachs is co-director of the Bipolar Clinic and Research Program at Massachusetts General Hospital and founder of Concordant Radar Systems and an associate professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts. Dr. Sachs has disclosed that he receives grant support from GlaxoSmithKline, National Institute of Mental Health, and Replogen Corporation. He serves as a consultant to or on the advisory boards of AstraZeneca Pharmaceuticals LP, Bristol-Myers Squibb Company, Cephalon Incorporated, Concordant Raider Systems, Eli Lilly and Company, GlaxoSmithKline, Janssen LP, Merck and Company Incorporated, Otsuka America Pharmaceutical Incorporated, Pfizer Incorporated, Shearing Plow Corporation, Sepracor Incorporated, Replogen Corporation, Sanofi Aventis, and Wyeth Pharmaceuticals. Over the next hour, Dr. McIntyre, Dr. Citrome, and Dr. Sachs will lead us through their presentation. The faculty have been informed of their responsibility to disclose to the audience if they will be discussing off-label or investigational uses of products or devices. A course guide for this activity, which includes slides, disclosures of faculty financial relationships, and full biographical profiles, can be found at neurosciencecme.com forward slash 436. 
or call 877-CMEPROS. To receive CE credit for this activity, you must complete the post-test and evaluation at neuroscienceCME.com forward slash test. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the activity. Welcome to Neuroscience CME TV, your personal link to the most widely recognized experts in the dynamic world of the neurosciences. developed by CME Outfitters, the award-winning accredited provider of continuing education in Rockville, Maryland. Hello, I'm Dr. Roger McIntyre. I'm an associate professor of psychiatry and pharmacology at the University of Toronto, where I'm also the head of the Mood Disorders Psychopharmacology Unit at the University Health Network. It's my pleasure to welcome you to Neuroscience See Me Live and On Demand, the continuing education series devoted to the needs of the professional neuroscience community. Neuroscience See Me Live and On Demand is brought to you by CME Outfitters, a best-in-class accredited provider of continuing education for multidisciplinary clinical audiences. Today's broadcast of Neuroscience See Me is also being streamed live and will be archived at www.neurosciencecme.com. I encourage you to visit the site for more educational activities to help you and your colleagues in your everyday practice. I'd also like to remind you to stick around for our segment named After the Show, where you're invited to call us or email us with your most challenging questions related to the diagnosis and treatment of bipolar disorder. Our goal during that segment is to further translate the evidence presented today into practical tools that you can use to improve the quality of the lives of patients that you see. We've received a lot of positive feedback regarding this segment, and I encourage you to keep sending your questions and comments to us. And with that, let me now welcome you to today's program, which is entitled Applying Performance Measures Through a Chronic Disease Model to Optimize Treatment of Bipolar Mania. I'm truly very excited about today's program, and I hope that you can, uh, will be able to share some of the best practices and quality measures to enhance the care of patients that you see with bipolar mania, a very chronic and very complex disorder indeed. Let me now start by reviewing the learning objectives for today's program. First, we'll discuss strategies for detecting mania or hypomania in patients with depressive symptoms within the context of guidelines and performance measures. Next, we will compare evidence-based treatment strategies that can be implemented early in the course of illness to address manic symptoms. Finally, we'll talk about elements of a chronic disease management model that should be considered when developing a long-term management plan for the patients that we see with bipolar mania. I'd now like to, if I could at this point, welcome my two colleagues who have joined me for today's program. Uh, Dr. Les Citrom is a professor of psychiatry at New York University Medical Center in New York City. Welcome, Les, to today's program. Thanks, Roger. Dr. Gary Sachs is an associate professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts. He's also the co-director of the Bipolar Clinic and Research Program at Massachusetts General Hospital and is the founder of Concordant Raider Systems. Welcome, Gary. To Pleasure program. to be with you, Roger. 
Let's now jump right into it if we can with addressing our first learning objective regarding detecting mania and hypomania. We want to address this topic in terms of the recommendations and call to action that can be found in several published clinical guidelines and performance measures. Secondly, I'd like to remind clinicians that we should be considering various guidelines in our daily day practice. One guideline that comes to mind is the so-called word flutteration of societies of biological psychiatry guidelines and the so-called stable measures. You can see the links to these two resources on the slide now. Gary, I want to just start right off with yourself. You were involved uh, with the STABLE program. I have used the STABLE program. Tell us what it is and why clinicians should be familiar with it. You know, Roger, th this is a, an interesting kind of project because the STABLE project brought forward a, a number of standards for performance uh, that were uh, accepted by the National Quality Forum. And what you see here are things that I, I would say amount to making sure we avoid the kind of don't ask, don't tell approach to assessment. And what the measures are telling us is that it is a standard anytime you see depression to evaluate for symptoms of mood elevation, to always evaluate the risk of suicide, to look at uh, substance abuse uh, in every patient that you see, to monitor the people that you're seeing who are taking atypicals for hyperglycemia as well as other metabolic uh, parameters, and then to actually document the change in function as you're doing treatment. Those five standards were accepted by the National Quality Forum, and I think eventually will be part of the pay-for-performance standards that we'll all see. That's quite a statement, Gary. You know, we talk about uh, measurement-based care. We're going to be emphasizing that throughout today's program, including evidence-based care as well as personalized care. But I like this whole idea of beginning with a standardized and structured approach to the patient. That's what we can. Now let's just shift to yourself. We have a case uh, of someone who has bipolar disorder. And I think it's important to have a case. I think it brings forward many of the learning objectives that we're trying to accomplish for today. What can you tell us about our case today, Miss GS? Well, Miss GS is not unusual uh, in terms of uh, the typical patient you would see in your own practice. Uh, she's uh, in her late 20s. She's employed as an IT professional. And you've been treating her for many years. Uh, actually, she's been treated for many mm -hmm. years. You've been treating her for a couple years for the diagnosis of major depressive disorder with recurrent episodes. And unfortunately, the conventional antidepressant strategies haven't really worked all that well. She gets a little better, but the effect is really not sustained, and she's not really satisfied. You've also tried cognitive behavioral therapy, and that really didn't work mm -hmm. all that well either. And mm -hmm. she comes to you saying, well, the last antidepressant you prescribed still isn't doing its job. You know, it's not helping me. Uh, please do something else. And in the course of the interview, you try to figure out what exactly is going wrong, and you want to find out exactly why the antidepressant's not working. And she says, well, you know, my depression is just worse, and my, and my work is starting to suffer. So you're beginning to have a, a functional deterioration in, in, in her uh, uh, occupation, and it, it's affecting her, her life in a more uh, important way. And she's coming to you and saying, then, I need some more help, and you're finding out uh, more about her depression, and you're asking her about how is your depression worse. And she admits to feeling less tired, but she's nervous, and she's irritable, and she's uh, irritated with her boyfriend, for example, and you try to figure out more, and she snaps at you. And mm -hmm. you ask her about her sleep, mm -hmm. and she says, well, I told you I'm not as tired anymore. Like, aren't you listening to me? Real, so you get real, a, real irritability. Yeah, you get a, not only is she depressed, but she's also uh, irritable and distractible. Yeah, you know, it's a good point, Wes. I've been struck how often as a clinician that irritability or distractibility, the most common complaints, will come back to that. 
And I'll come back to Gary in a few moments. Maybe you can remind us of the criteria for bipolar disorder. But given the information we have now, I'd like now to uh, go out to our audience and have uh, you involved with us. I'd like to ask you via the Internet, uh, based on what you've heard from uh, Les, what he's presented, would you change the working diagnosis for GS from major depressive disorder? Internet viewers, you will see the polling questions in a pop-up on your screen. Please vote now. These are the options. A, no, she has unipolar depression, that is major depressive disorder, or B, yes, she has bipolar disorder, or C, yes, she has schizophrenia. So you go ahead and select now. Gary, while we're waiting for our responses to come in from the audience, this is a, uh, an interesting time in psychiatry. DSM-5 is, is under preparation. It's under construction. There's now a, an online uh, version people can look at. It's in the public domain. We're still in DSM-4-TR. What can you tell us about the criteria of mania and hypomania as mentioned in DSM-4-TR? Well, you know, it, it really is important, and especially if, if we follow up from the uh, ideas from the, the stable project. Here we have a lady whose diagnosis is depression. And the recommendation is that we ought to evaluate not just the symptoms she, she spontaneously reports, but we ought to go through all of the criteria for mania and hypomania to see if this lady might, in fact, not only have depressive episodes, but periods of abnormal mood elevation, could she be bipolar? So to do that, we shift over and we look at what's in the diagnostic criteria for mania and hypomania. And there, it's really uh, very straightforward. And, and I, I've tried to array these, <clears throat> these things where you're looking in different categories. I'm <clears throat> looking for abnormal mood states that include euphoria, expansiveness, irritability, being excessively happy, but I want to test out the threshold. It's not, did she ever have racing thoughts? Did she ever have a time when she laughed? It's, does this meet the threshold for being uh, present to a significant degree throughout a week for mania? And any period of time is sufficient if they're hospitalized. Nice. And was there marked impairment in social occupational function? Not due to the depressive symptoms, but due to the symptoms that actually constitute mania uh, mm -hmm. in this case. So we can look at that. I'm sure you can see in the slides that, that you all have uh, not only these criteria, but also the associated symptoms. And if they're there, that would put her into the bipolar mm -hmm. realm for sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, we can look at the difference, for instance, between hypomania and mania. And what we see that it really comes down to, it's not so important, is it four days or it's seven days? It comes down to this issue of marked impairment. Mm -hmm. So you show me a patient who might be mildly giddy, but is sent home for work for doing all sorts of inappropriate things. And actually, you know, we could decide, does that constitute marked impairment? If you think it does, that's a manic episode, that's a bipolar 1 patient. Let me ask so you, Gary, let me ask you about this. This is, a, this is a really important issue, and a frequently asked question is, a patient presents with hypomanic symptoms, or it is documented, they have a third party with them in the office with you. The hypomanic symptoms are not even a matter of debate. It's very clear that's what's happened. But they've lasted a day. they lasted a day and a half. How do you respond to that? Well, you know, it's important to me to divide this up into patients who have a prior diagnosis. So if I saw hypomanic symptoms in a bipolar one, that's often a stage. Right. And, you know, the launching right. pad is there and they're going to go off. I wouldn't hesitate to treat that right then and there. I would never say to a patient, let's see if you stay, uh, you know, as symptomatic as you are now for another week or maybe right. at worst, come back. Right. No, if we have the diagnosis established, we're going to treat here and now to try to protect the patient. On the other hand, 
you show me the patient who's uh, maybe from New Orleans, their team just won the Super Bowl. Right. They're, they're, yeah, maybe it's a little excessive that they're, they're still feeling a bit giddy from that. Right. But I, I could wait a bit for that patient. It's not so easy uh, to uh, get a history of mania or hypomania, is it? They have no insight into their behaviors, mm-hmm. and they don't see it as something to complain about. Yeah, it, it really is true. You know, the other side of that is that if they're going to complain of anything, even during a euphoric manic episode, it's most likely that they'll complain of depression. Yeah. And we have to see past that chief complaint to the full spectrum of symptoms they may have. Just on that note, Gary, if you look at depressive symptoms versus manic symptoms, how does it break down in terms of the proportion of time patients are ill with their illness? You know, depression predominates whether it's bipolar 1, where its ratio of three times as frequent to have the lows as the high, and 37 times as much if it's bipolar 2, low to high. So depression, depression, depression is the name of the game in the bipolar clinic. I want to pick up on that, and I agree that the ubiquity of depressive symptoms in episodes less. um, The Step ED, Gary, this is an initiative Mm -hmm. you were a leader in, uh, offers us the, the largest data set in the world to look at real-world bipolar. There's so many questions Gary's and his group have looked at. Um, let's look at a report from the Step ED group, uh, an attempt to look at depression as part of bipolar disorder. Are patients with bipolar disorder who are depressed experiencing manic symptoms? If they are, what are the symptoms of mania that they often present with? You know, that's, a, that's an excellent issue because patients with depression don't just come with depression, uh, but they don't always tell us uh, all the things we need to know in the diagnostic checklist, and we have to be aware of what to exactly look for. And fortunately, it's common enough. In the STEP-BD program, uh, there was a a series of 1,400 patients with bipolar depression, and the percentage of patients with manic symptoms uh, is outlined here on the graph that you have. It turns out that uh, many patients have at least one manic symptom from the checklist, and that actually would give us a clue that we're dealing with not just unipolar depression, but we're perhaps dealing with bipolar depression. And it's a very useful diagnostic uh, clue to, uh, to start thinking outside the box, and maybe I'm not dealing with major depressive disorder at all. If we take a look at what symptoms uh, are, are present in these patients, distractibility is the most commonly encountered, uh, as well as uh, flights of idea, racing thoughts, increased speech, but low down on the list is increased self-esteem, which, you know, would be, uh, you wouldn't expect to see that in someone who's depressed. But this distractibility, this irritability should be a clue, particularly someone who's younger, who's not getting better with antidepressant monotherapy. Yeah, maybe if I just jump in here to, to clarify a point, if you look at this slide, remember uh, that what Les is talking about here, the uh, parts that are the greenish tops of each of these bars represent patients who got a clinical diagnosis of depressive episode, pure and simple, but the symptoms reported by the doctor met the full criteria for a mixed episode. Right. So this is simple lack of awareness on the part of the clinician that what they've been seeing meets the criteria by their own symptom mm-hmm. report for a full mixed episode. And even when it didn't, the rest of the bars are telling us things like the distractibility is very, very common. So there are not many pure episodes out there when it comes down to it. You know, I think it's an important statement. As a clinician, I have been struck at how often that phenotype, that sort of, you know, admixture of depression and mania, not only is it common, but often these folks end up on antidepressant medication, probably to their detriment. Let's if we can, in fact, Gary, come back to yourself. 
Our patient is presenting with what appears to be manic symptoms, the patient that Les has described Ms. GS. Changes things slightly for us. So I'm going to fill in some blanks, and let's just presume that what you said is absolutely true. We do our evaluation, and we see that GS beats criteria either for hypomanic or manic symptoms symptom, uh, episode. Those symptoms, therefore, elevate the diagnosis from the unipolar realm to the bipolar realm. And that patient, if they've had prior depressions, has to be either bipolar 2 or bipolar 1, depending on the, the magnitude of this uh, mood elevation that they've had. So when we look at the DSM mood disorder category, we can see that not just full episodes, but periods of clinically significant abnormal mood elevation that may not be clearly satisfying the criteria for hypomania or mania, if it's clinically significant, you can go ahead and make the diagnosis bipolar. If you're not so sure, I think it's okay to stick in the unipolar realm, but it gets back to this issue of the choices of treatment, because if, right. if there's a good chance this patient is bipolar, we don't want to manage them in a potentially risky way. It's an excellent point, and you know, as I'm thinking about our discussion right now, we're, we're you know, making this point, I think pressing the point strongly that depression is not only the index presentation of bipolar, but often will obscure the bipolar presentation. I've also been struck in my experience of how often patients, if you will, chief complaint is anxiety, where hypomania and mania was mobilized from a baseline of anxiety rather than depression. And often depression and anxiety, were, you know, they're, they're admixed together. So we're emphasizing depression, but we shouldn't forget that anxiety is often the, the, the distress that often brings them to the clinic. Let's, if we can now, go back to our polling question. Uh, let's see how the uh, Internet audience has responded to our question with the diagnosis of Ms. GS. And maybe I'll uh, start off with yourself, Gary, if you have any reaction or less, any reaction. We have the majority, 74%. Think she's bipolar. Well, I think she uh, could be considered as bipolar disorder, but we don't have all the information yet. Right, right. Uh, we'll, we still have to do a full uh, diagnostic uh, workup. We have to ask all the right questions to really establish the diagnosis. But we have a hint that we're not just dealing with major depressive disorder. But my guess is that the quarter of the respondents who say that, well, she still has unipolar depression, Maybe uh, they're saying to themselves, I don't have enough information. So I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. Right, right. You know, one of the um, observations one can't help but make is that we, we, we've been hearing that bipolar disorder may be overdiagnosed. We're diagnosing it more often, perhaps too much. We hear other lines of evidence that, in fact, we are missing it most often, and, and it's underdiagnosed. So the theme that emanates is the complexity of making the diagnosis. Gary, what in your view, are the major obstacles to getting the diagnosis right? Yeah, yeah, Roger, I think the point of what you said is not for us to agree whether it's over or under diagnosis. It's often that we're not doing a very good job with diagnosis, so it's poorly diagnosed. Some of that really is unavoidable because, you know, you have a patient come in and they're floridly manic and their symptom reports are not so reliable or they're complaining of depression, which is the most common chief complaint, during a, a full manic episode. The diagnostic criteria themselves are, are, are not so easy to use. What does it mean present to a significant degree through a week? That's kind of a, a tough judgment call. We also know that you know, during mixed episodes, it's really hard to get a clear symptom report. And, and those are, are, in fact, pretty common. We also can see that there's a, an over-tendency to rely exclusively on the patient's self-report. And after all, this is an illness that distorts reception, per, uh, perception. And to rely on the patient's reported perceptions exclusively is always going to lead you down the wrong path. Mm -hmm. So we have to be careful about that. And then the last point I think 
there's been a tendency for us to go from being diagnosticians to an over-reliance on screening and to have sort of a name-that-tune approach to diagnosis. Oh, this looks like a bipolar. I can tell it across the room, or I can use the scale, and you know, that, that just tells me the diagnosis. We need to be much more formal than that. You know, one of the issues around uh, diagnosing bipolar, I think, really comes down to mixed states. And, you know, going back to how it was originally described by Kreplin, who had six different definitions of mixed states, today we would often say we have two. We have the DSM, we have the ICD. I think that we have much more than two. I think if you ask every, any clinician what's a diagnosis of a mixed state, you're going to get a different answer. So I think we have endless definitions of mixed states. Gary, walk us through. Mixed states, what, what, what really is the challenge here for us making the diagnosis? Yeah. Well, one is that we're, we're often really confused between these different definitions. The DSM definition is pretty clear. It requires the patient satisfy criteria for both a full manic episode and a full depressive episode within the same week. Now, that's relatively clear, but also relatively uncommon. We know from a lot of the data that having as few as two depressive symptoms during mania alters the course. But more recently, we've come to realize that there are patients who have full episodes of depression who have only a couple of symptoms of mood elevation. And we're beginning to learn that this DSM disallowed state is not only a clinical reality, but probably has prognostic significance as well and really should be taken into consideration when we choose treatments. That's a very good point. Last, bipolar depression. It really is public enemy number one. There are many, many serious hazards that are posed by bipolar depression in terms of uh, self-harm and suicide. It's also linked to persistent cognitive deficits. We also know it's linked to premature mortality in terms of medical uh, causes and so on. Taken together, it is a, it's, it's a chief therapeutic target, primary therapeutic target for us. Many have said to me, is it really that relevant to diagnose bipolar disorder from major depressive disorder, to distinguish those? Um, how would you respond to that? Well, it's actually an easy uh, question to answer because the treatments are completely different. With bipolar depression, you don't want to give a, an antidepressant as a monotherapy. Giving an antidepressant as a monotherapy to someone with bipolar depression may increase the risk of rapid cycling or even flipping the patient into mania. And even though there may be some small symptomatic relief in depressed mood, it's uh, not persistent. You're not going to get the patient better for very long. And major depressive disorder, the uh, primary treatment is antidepressant and hopefully as a monotherapy. So the treatments uh, are utterly different. It's very important to distinguish between major depressive disorder and bipolar depression for that reason. Yeah. Towards that aim, uh, clinicians are very busy, and the last thing they want is academicians saying, use more scales, more instruments, and so on. So against that somewhat uh, um, maybe sort of measured background, uh, no pun intended, what would you say are the clinically friendly assessment tools that clinicians could apply in everyday practice? Well, clinicians need to be aware of the mood disorder questionnaire, and not as a, as a tool that they'll actually use in the office. If you're a psychiatrist, you're not going to use the MDQ. You're going to ask all the questions that the MDQ has, but as a, you're not going to just do a screen. Uh, but it's helpful to review it in order to learn uh, more about the questions that can help. Uh, and we're going to review that in a moment. There's also a bunch of uh, assessment tools for diagnosis, but again, these are used uh, for research rather than at the bedside. 
But I do want to make people uh, aware of the existence of rating scales that are reasonably short and easy to administer. They don't take very long, and they help the patient participate in a self-assessment, so to speak. And you should, uh, I think viewers should be aware of, of these scales, like the Young Mania Rating Scale, the Montgomery Asberg Depression Rating Scale, uh, and so on. If for any other reason to be able to translate the evidence, because this is the scales that are most often used. If you take a look at these scales, uh, you'll find that they consist of a limited number of items. But if you do know them, then you'll be able to interpret the literature uh, you know, more carefully and appraise the evidence uh, in a more relevant way to your practice. You know, one of the uh, the points that you raised, Les, and you, you know, the issue of screening, and, and which I agree with, and, and certainly with a followed by in-depth probing. I think it's also an additional point that we should not forget that the need to rescreen and reprobe doesn't end with the first visit. We often see patients with depression who come in. I've known patients in my office, uh, in my clinic, uh, for five or seven years who've had de- so-called depression. It turns out later bipolar declares itself. And I think that we are motivated to screen and then probe deeply when we don't see a, an outcome that we're uh, hoping for with the patients. Gary, the bipolarity index, I know you're familiar with it. I've used it in my clinical practice. Mm. Tell us about it. So the bipolarity index is a, is a very different idea. What it's based on is taking the five dimensions of illness that Robinson Gouzet and, and, and really Kreplin himself contribute some of these. So these are the dimensions on which all psychiatric illness is validated. So what we're talking about here is episode characteristics, age of onset, course of illness, response to treatment, and family history. And if we assign 0 to 20 for each one of those, where 20 is the most convincing characteristics, we get a 0 to 100 score. And this gives us a measure of not yes-no bipolar, but how bipolar somebody might appear compared to the classic Kreplinian or Cade sort of presentation. We've spent some time on the diagnostic question. We could spend a lot of time on that. I want to focus now on something slightly different. It's our second objective, and that's treatment. And our second learning objective is to evaluate treatment strategies for a patient with bipolar manic symptoms. Let's look again at our patient, GS. And let me now ask our Internet viewers, given that she now has a bipolar disorder diagnosis, how would you treat GS? Again, for those watching on the internet, you'll see a pop-up with the uh, polling question, how would you treat GS? Your options are A, optimize the current regimen, B, switch to lithium, C, switch to an atypical antipsychotic, D, add an atypical antipsychotic to current regimen. Gary, while we're waiting for our responses to come in, Maybe I could uh, turn over to you now. Walk us through what has been, I'll even be quite frank, uh, an explosion of research, new treatments for bipolar. We've seen more agents approved for bipolar disorder in the last 10 years than we have the last 10 decades combined. This has been really a time of bipolar treatment. Walk us through the the, the treatment options pharmacologically and their levels of evidence. So the, the first thing that's helpful to me is let's make a cut at what we really should be up on and know about. I would argue that that's what you see in the slide where it's labeled category A evidence. These are treatments where there is evidence from double-blind placebo-controlled trials that are adequately powered uh, that show a treatment actually works for, in this case, mania. And what we have under that category is lithium, valproate, carbamazepine, and seven uh, dopamine-blocking agents. These are the first-line treatments to be considering for your patients. We also have a number of treatments that have been well-studied but haven't delivered results. They're right. negative, or maybe they're failed trials. We don't know. 
But what we see on the left-hand side of that slide, the Category A evidence, that's sort of the coin of the realm for deciding how to proceed in treatment. Really strikes me that some of the anticonvulsants look good in terms of efficacy, but not all anticonvulsants are efficacious in bipolar disorder. It's really important. You know, you're picking up on the idea that we often jump to the conclusion that there's a class effect like anticonvulsants, and this data is telling us not so fast on that one. Right. There does appear to be a class effect for dopamine blocking agents. Hmm. It's mania. very interesting. For mania, these yeah. are consistently positive studies. Let's, let's keep that going, Gary. FDA approves treatments based on evidence and also the effort to submit and go through the process. What are the FDA-approved agents as a function of phase? And yeah, I think you, you can read through the slide and you, you can see that there are some FDA-approved treatments, most recently the ones who have Category A evidence. But some have grandfathered in, like chlorpromazine. Uh, there really isn't a Category A study for chlorpromazine. And we can see that their FDA approval for specific indications, I would put my faith more in where is the Category A evidence. Now, it may be important to you where you practice in your system, uh, what the FDA says, and I, I'm all for being aware of that. But in terms of making a treatment plan for a given patient, I think where the evidence is from these high-quality studies is much more important to me. Right. Uh, Last, Gary has highlighted this uh, This. Uh Different treatments, their indication, FDA. Let's have a more detailed look at agents approved for acute bipolar mania. Can you have a slide for us? Well, in the slide, well, you can see the response rates for the different agents and also the response rate for placebo. And response is defined by a 50% reduction in symptoms over a period of time. And that's actually a very clinically relevant outcome. You want symptoms to be reduced to a significant extent that the patient will notice, that you will notice, and they're on their way to recovery. And uh, this is not a slide of one giant study. This is a compilation of different studies done for each individual agent, uh, and they've all been compared with placebo. And the thing to uh, notice is the difference in response rates from drug versus placebo. The bigger the difference drug-placebo, the more important uh, the result and the greater the effect size. And we can actually take this figure of uh, difference between response rate of drug versus placebo and calculate something called number needed to treat mm-hmm. and do an indirect mm-hmm. comparison of what are our chances of encountering one additional responder uh, after you know treating a certain number of patients. Uh, so it's actually uh, quite illustrative to look at, at, at uh, graphs like these. And we see that every agent here has a statistically significant separation from placebo in the treatment of acute mania as measured by 50% reduction in symptoms. It's a good point. Maybe during the after the show segment, we can pick up on some of these threads in terms of why is placebo response is so high and, well, you know, and so on. So yes. there's, a, there's a number of different points here. I want to ask you if I can move on to how our audience has responded to our polling question on how to treat GS. And it looks as though, uh, based on the results here, that the majority of people have chosen uh, D, that is the addition of an atypical antipsychotic to the current regimen. Any responses, gentlemen? You know, I would challenge uh, those who, who answered uh, to uh, add an atypical antipsychotic to a current regimen that's not working. Uh, you know, one of the things that, that we do in medicine perhaps too often is to add medicines uh, on top of medicines that don't seem to work. And the patient ends up on, on multiple meds without any, you know, real good reason for that. So one thing to consider is what, what other treatments as monotherapy can we try mm-hmm. to help this patient? It's not like we're building on gains already achieved. Mm-hmm. This woman has not had a response. 
Gary, the Velcro effect of medication that just keeps sticking? Uh, you know, I, I, I actually agree completely with the point that Les is making here. Often what you see is that you add on, add on, add on. You do have difficulty getting some people off, and I think that reflects how long you've left them on. And particularly if you see a patient who has gotten no improvement whatsoever, even in as little as two weeks, that's highly predictive if they're at an adequate dose that they're not going to get better. And right. it's very reasonable to get rid of the things that aren't working. Let's stick with what works. Let's move on to the next treatment. I agree with that completely. Yeah. In many cases, by removing an agent, you're also removing the burden of side effects. So I've often referred to that as an example of addition by subtraction. Unless um, you're um, wondering about the appropriateness of maybe an atypical in this case, we're talking about now sequencing treatments. So we have guidelines. There's many out there. I'm going to take the opportunity to plug the Canadian guidelines. There's uh, hopefully American guidelines soon. And we have world guidelines, which we've talked about. There's actually over a dozen guidelines. Today we have the world guideline algorithm here. Um, what would you say in terms of these guidelines from the WFSBP sequencing treatment going forward? Yeah, there is a number of different treatment guidelines, as you mentioned, but fortunately they all look about the same. Uh, they all uh, make sure that you consider the first-line treatments as monotherapies, and these first-line treatments all have the best evidence to support their use. And if those don't work within a reasonable amount of time, you're faced with a decision, should I add something to what the patient is, is already receiving, or should I make a switch? And the switch or, or the, uh, the add-on is always to something that perhaps uh, wasn't uh, a first tier, uh, or sometimes it's a switch to yet something else that the patient may be uh, more uh, tolerable to. And this brings up to mind the whole issue of when you figure out a medicine for a patient, it's not just the guidelines. You also have to take into account the patient's preferences and values and what they are looking for in terms of which symptoms do they want the most help with. Right. They could be real anxious and absolutely need something to help with their anxiety, or they're absolutely not sleeping and they absolutely need something to mm -hmm. help them sleep. Uh, and for tolerability, they want to avoid one side effect or they don't care about another. Right. And that really has to play into Certainly. your choice. I, I really think the, the whole issue of guidelines is something that we have to give some careful thought to. As a, as a recovering author of, of guidelines, having, having worked <laughs> in this process, we, we get really enamored of them. I'm not so sure they do clinicians very much good or patients very much good. And I think if, if, if you realized how little use guidelines got, if guidelines were cars, all the companies making them would be out of business. And we should start to remember that when we, we give these directives, follow the world guideline, the Canadian guideline, these have very limited benefit in managing any one individual patient. And we need to start to think about personalizing the care for patients. Let's hold that point and come, maybe come back to it. I like to, that notion with the personalized aspect. I think it's been a major pushback to guidelines that these are not real-world patients. Let's, 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 let's hold well, that thought. You know, the guidelines are also based on efficacy studies and not necessarily effectiveness right. studies. Right. Efficacy is very narrowly defined as a reduction in symptoms. Effectiveness is a combination of efficacy and tolerability and whether or not the patient's actually going to take that medicine. So a drug is only going to work in the real world if, for that particular individual patient, that it's efficacious, tolerable, and they're willing to take it. You know, it's often stated in this business and other sort of areas of medicine that the worst side effect is when the drug doesn't work. So inefficacy is the worst side effect. With that sort of somewhat, you know, one level seems trite, but I think it's actually there's a serious message in that statement. Gary, come, I want to come to you on side effects. Yeah. Patients will often, 
not always, but will often stop medications because of side effects. What are the major side effect concerns, major safety concerns? You know, we can really talk about them, and they're different drug by drug and even class by class. And as we can see in this slide, uh, there are particular issues, let's say, with lithium, the anti-epileptics, or antipsychotic drugs. But to me, the important thing is to predict the adverse effects for patients, because anything that you've suggested to a patient that they may experience becomes easier for them to tolerate. So making the adverse effects expectable, predictable, goes a long way to helping a patient stick with the treatment long enough to get the benefit. You have a patient come back in, you know, whether we're talking about weight gain or tremor, and you didn't say anything about it, and the patient, oh, yeah, I had a terrible time with that. And you say, yeah, I knew that it caused that. The patient starts to really wonder right. how much you care, and they may have already thrown away the drug. So, so it's of little benefit at that point. The point to talk about side effects is at the beginning. And what we can also do is help patients understand that not only are these expectable, but that we can monitor for them and to go over in advance what is it that we're looking for? We're going to watch out for weight gain, and we're going to monitor your, your lipids in your blood, and we're going to watch over your cardiovascular function. Uh, all of these things to be discussed in advance allow patients to remain compliant with their medications for a lot longer. You know, to get patients to buy into their treatment, you have to tell them all about it. And uh, if you don't tell them and they're surprised, you've lost the patient. Exactly. Well, you know, we, we could... Speak to this issue in a, in a whole lot more detail. Maybe we'll come back to it in, the, in our After the Show segment. I want to now shift into our third, if you will, objective for today's program, and that is uh, recognizing elements of a chronic disease management model. And maybe last, I'll turn it over to yourself. What are the key elements that would be part of a chronic disease management model, and what is their evidence in, in bipolar disorder? Well, we've already started to talk about that when discussing the importance of letting the patient know what may happen in terms of tolerability issues. If they're not surprised, that's a good thing. If they are surprised, they, they're likely to start thinking twice about remaining adherent. And patient-focused care means exactly that. You uh, look at uh, the individual values and preferences uh, of the patient, what symptoms they need uh, uh, addressing a more uh, uh, with a higher priority, which side effects to avoid, uh, it's a longitudinal, long-term process because, after all, bipolar disease is a lifelong disorder. And uh, hopefully you'll have a, a good therapeutic alliance for, for years to come to help them remain well. So it's a very collaborative with the patient. It's also multidisciplinary. If you need uh, some assistance uh, from other specialties or for additional community supports or vocational supports, then uh, you have to access them. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Gary, we, we spoke about evidence-based medicine and measuring outcomes. Now, you mentioned earlier about personalized or individualized yeah. in the care. It's one of the I think, criti criticisms of, of the guidelines that they're not represented for real-world patients. Can we apply this model to our individual patients? Absolutely. And you know, one of the first things to talk about with patients, and this is the point that uh, Les was making about this idea of a chronic care model, when somebody has pneumonia or a broken bone, we're aiming for a cure. That's not the case with many psychiatric diseases. And I think having an explicit discussion that we're not focusing on curing, I'm, I'm not here to get the recipe right to cure your bipolar disorder, but instead the appropriate goal for a chronic illness is to increase the rate at which patients and their supports, professional and otherwise, make wise decisions amicably. And that means that we're going to take into account the patient's preferences, we're going to measure the outcomes, 
and we're going to learn from each of these experiences to alter the menu of reasonable choices we present to the patient next. And by accumulating the experience of the patient's actual personal response to each treatment, that means we're really accumulating a lot of biomarkers, if mm -hmm. you will, mm -hmm. about that individual patient. And we follow two simple rules. We continue the things that work, and we stop the things that don't work, just as, as you were saying. Mm -hmm. And that's mm -hmm. the ticket to optimizing a personal care plan. You know, getting patients involved in their treatment is really critical here. Getting them uh, to be able to look at their symptoms and look at response to, to treatment is, is critically important. There are some tools out there. Life charting, for example, is available uh, to folks uh, who want to engage their patients in recording uh, symptoms and medication and response in a systematic way. It gets the patient quite involved. It really does. Gary, the, the notion of concordance and adherence, something I know you've had an interest yeah. in for a while. How would you bring that to bipolar disorder? Yeah, you know, this idea of, of concordance, it really means the degree to which the patient and you agree about what a reasonable treatment plan might be. So we look at that, that level of agreement on one dimension in a two-by-two two table, and the other is fidelity to the treatment plan. Is the patient adherent or not? Now, it's really very simple when the patient is adherent and agrees. We don't have to talk much about that. But interestingly enough, a lot of patients agree with the treatment plan, but they just can't stick to it, whether that's because they have poor executive function or they're not conscientious or what have you. When they agree to the treatment plan, they are very open to accepting external supports. So having a spouse or a friend remind you it's time to go back to the doctors or take your meds sure. or, or sure. refill your prescriptions, that's really welcome. On the other hand, when the patient is not in agreement about the treatment plan, you got to drop back and decide, let's find something that we can agree to agree about, or I think you have no treatment plan and no patient. You know, this uh, two-by-two two table actually applies not only, of course, to bipolar disorder, but to any chronic disorder, and it reminds me very much about how we think of schizophrenia as well. There are patients who are adherent, they take their medicine, they understand, that's fine, nothing to worry about. You have those who absolutely have no insight and don't feel a need to, to take medicine because they're not ill. That's another uh, issue. But you're left with also a substantial number of patients who believe they need treatment and they would be adherent if only they had more tools to be adherent. Right. Uh, if they only had some more assistance, and we think of Depot uh, specifically for those patients who are you know, willing to be treated, they just can't remember to take things consistently. That's right. So getting these elaborate treatment plans together for patients who, who really have significant cognitive impairment, that's just a complete waste. Yeah. We it, can't keep asking people to do over and over what they're not capable of doing. You know, one of the uh, points that uh, I think is understated is the non-adherence to psychosocial interventions as well. We, we talk about non-adherence to medication. Uh, less in bipolar, it's over 50% within three to four months. Uh, there's also a very low rate of adherence to manual-based psychosocial interventions. What can clinicians do, real world, to improve adherence in bipolar disorder? I think clinicians have to realize that it's not a question, is my patient not adherent, but uh, when will it occur? It's to expect it and to be aware of it. And the figure of 50% non-adherence actually applies to almost any medicine for any chronic disorder. Right. Good point. It's not exclusive to bipolar disorder. It's seen for schizophrenia. It's seen uh, for uh, hypertension and so on. So the important point is to get the patient uh, to buy into the treatment selection and that they see value in, in taking this medicine and carefully assess 
uh, for uh, non-response and not not mistaking that uh, for uh, just that the patient was was not adherent. If we believe that the patient is not getting better because the medicine is not working, uh, not because they're not adherent, we'll be tempted to add more medicines of which they'll still become not adherent. Uh, they'll still not take. And uh, one way of, of approaching this, and I would like to take a, a minute to describe, is if you ask the question, uh, did you take your medicine, Mr. Jones? Mr. Jones will always say, yes, of course I, I took my medicine. But if you ask Mr. Jones, tell me, over the past week, how many doses have you missed? You know, just give me a ballpark figure, figure so we can just uh, sort of uh, see how many. And that opens the door to a discussion that's uh, reality-based, that patients will miss their medicine mm-hmm. on occasion, and it's important to be aware of it, and then you can uh, intervene. Yeah, another thing that we find really helpful is to make these collaborative care plans in writing and have always included as part of them a so-called care partner. That means usually a non-professional who is actually signed on to the plan who can be that external support. Gary, mm-hmm. one of the uh, forms we use in our clinic is an adaptation of the form that you have where you have the percentage of adherence to medication. Mm-hmm. which I find, It's just a, a, a sort of morphed version of what you were referring to last where I ask patients in the last week or two weeks, what percentage of time have you not taken your medication or, or have taken it? And it's, mm-hmm. it's a different way of saying it. And I find it very useful. It mm-hmm. opens the door for them to, to speak to the issue. Right. And, and, you know, I, I, frankly, I have found, you know, I've, I've spoken to the topic of adherence in many different meetings and, 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 and get-togethers. And I still to this day find myself thinking my patients are 100% adherent. Uh, there's something I think, someone, maybe a, a clinician narcissism, that it, it, every patient except my patient, but I, I've learned that uh, there's no room for that in my practice. <laughs> right. Uh, assume non-adherence, uh, that it will occur with, with your patients. It's, right. it's the only way to go. And, you know, curiously enough, the gold standard in adherence research is not 100% adherence. It's 75% adherence mm. is classify someone as being adherent. So taking your medicine three-quarters of the time is considered good enough in, right. in most of the adherence research out there. Well, we've covered a lot of territory. Uh, we have certainly much more we could cover, but I want to have uh, use, use your word uh, fidelity uh, to our time. Before we take uh, your questions, let's now go to our trademark clinical connections that allow clinicians to connect this education to improve care of your patients. Les, can you give us some key points with the diagnosis that may help our clinicians watching today? From our case patient, we saw that someone with major depressive disorder is often misdiagnosed, and they actually have a bipolar disorder, and that changes the treatment completely. Giving uh, an antidepressant monotherapy to someone with bipolar disorder is a problem. So misdiagnosis is, is a big issue out there. And we have to use the therapeutic modalities that have the best evidence to to support their use. And fortunately for bipolar disorder, particularly mania, we have a whole range to select from for that individual patient. Gary, can you give us some key points about the treatment and long-term management of bipolar disorder? Sure. I think we started with the idea of let's make a formal diagnosis. Let's make an explicit goal of treatment, making a higher rate of wise decisions amicably with our patients to integrate measurement with the management plan using proven treatments first and then continuing what works and stopping what doesn't work. Good way to end. Now let's turn to our audience and allow them a chance to ask uh, your questions about today's topic. Uh, You can contact us by calling, faxing, or emailing us. Our call-in number is 1-800-879-2222. 
2166, or you can fax us your questions to 240-465-5524, or you can email us at questions at cmeoutfitters.com. We look forward to hearing from you. I have a number of questions that have already uh, come in by email. Maybe we can get started right there, uh, and uh, we'll start that in just a few moments. My, I think that one of the, 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 the issues that really surfaces for me, always in programs, uh, speaking to bipolar disorder, is yes, timely detection, timely diagnosis, and really getting the management of this, this, this condition right. Um, we have said uh, very little at this point about using uh, antidepressants, about the use of benzodiazepine, sleeping agents, and so on. Questions often ask, is there a role for these agents in managing bipolar? What's your response? You know, it's a fascinating question because we've always assumed someone who's depressed needs an antidepressant. And if they're bipolar, uh, if they're bipolar, then, you know, as long as you give something else in addition to the antidepressant, you'll be okay. But it turns out in long-term studies that the addition of an antidepressant long-term didn't confer any advantage to those receiving it versus a mood stabilizer alone. So maybe it's not true. Gary? So, you know, I, I think what you're saying is exactly right in terms of the population-based uh, guidelines. If we were talking about personalized care, remember that that's a very different set of issues because if you had a patient that you had treated with an antidepressant and they're doing well, follow that principle of continue what works because the personal outcome for a given patient really is the important thing to, to guide treatment decisions. If we only had uh, N of 1 studies every time we treated a patient, we would know for certain what to prescribe. Yeah. And in a way, that gets to the value of your record-keeping, because whether it's for you seeing the same patient three years later or the next clinician, if you really have recorded that this patient is a non-responder to X, that's worth its weight in gold yeah. to the patient. We have many, many email questions that have come in. Why don't we get started? I'll try and paraphrase and uh, try and keep some of these questions uh, neat in terms of their um, time here. Bipolar disorder seems to be a personality change of highs and lows. What if a patient cycles from high to low during the interview within minutes? Is that something that we might consider as bipolar? Would you treat it differently? This is a question from Dr. Schaffner. Yeah, well, Dr. Schaffner, you're bringing up uh, something that often raises uh, the distinction between emotions and mood, where emotions are a lot more like the weather and highly changeable, and mood is much more like the climate. So it's very hard to say you know, when you see these shifts of extreme emotions, it is certainly the case that you will observe that in individual patients. You also brought up the issue of personality traits. And I think one of the important things that we've learned recently by measuring personality traits is that there are characteristics for bipolar patients. They tend to be having higher measures of neuroticism, low extroversion, high openness, but also low agreeableness and low conscientiousness. And evaluating those sorts of factors, I think, can be very valuable in, in making a real treatment plan with your patient. You're making reference to the NEO-PI, one of these multidimensional personality exactly. measures. You know, one thing to consider is the bipolar spectrum idea of, of looking at bipolar disorder, where you can have uh, different types of bipolar, not just bipolar 1 and bipolar 2, but 3, 4, 5, and 6, and so on. And that takes into account some of the underlying personality traits that these patients may have. And it helps us identify those who may have some bipolarity to them and perhaps uh, help us steer the direction of treatment towards uh, something that would actually work and avoid 
antidepressant monotherapy, which classically has not uh, turned out to be so great for these patients. Good point. Here's a, uh, a critical question for many patients who are exposed to antipsychotics long-term, both conventional and atypical. What is the potential for tardive dyskinesia? And it's not explicitly stated whether it refers to atypicals or conventionals. There may be a different answer. You know, TD is a problem that has not gone away, and unfortunately patients with mood disorders are more likely to develop tardive dyskinesia than patients with schizophrenia. The older the patient is, uh, also the higher the risk. Uh, we can mitigate this risk by using uh, second-generation antipsychotics, but it's something that you need to monitor for. And the issue also is that you couldn't have spontaneous occurrences of dyskinetic movements that may not be related to the antipsychotic, and you'll never know if there was an etiological uh, uh, cause. Yeah, so if I take what you're saying, Les, I, I have to realize that, let, let's just depict a, pick a number. I think you could find support for a number like the risk of tardive dyskinesia being roughly 3% per year of, of exposure. If with atypicals it was one-tenth that, it would still be important to warn people of the potential before you start it, and even more important, to actually monitor for that during the course of treatment. If you do that, you have done your duty to the patient. And of course, if they have accepted that risk by accepting the treatment, then I think we're on for, firm footing as we manage their care. Yes, it is a good idea to keep monitoring for TD. We have a, a phone call from Brian in Massachusetts. Go ahead, Brian. Firm footing as we manage their care. Hello? Go ahead, Brian. Yeah, we can hear you. Phone call from Brian in Massachusetts. Go ahead, Brian. The question is, would automated monitoring of sleep and wake cycles um, help in the diagnosis? The would automated monitoring of sleep and wake cycles... Can you just turn your TV down, Brian? Yep. Uh, would automated monitoring of sleep and wake cycles and activity um, help in the diagnosis and... Um, follow-up treatment of bipolar patients? Hmm. Interesting question. You know, I, I can tell you that there are cases where, where we've been very impressed that it would help. In some of our studies, we, we've had actigraphy. And in, in one particular case where uh, somebody got into a bit of trouble as they developed a, a manic episode during the course of, of the study, they had been reported reporting no change in their sleep. And it turned out, by looking at the actigraphy, we had seen for the prior five days that they really were not sleeping very well. In fact, getting progressively less sleep each day leading up to uh, what was symptomatic. But by their report, subjectively, there was no problem with their sleep. So we did miss a chance to intervene. Uh, and, and I could imagine that there's great potential for that kind of monitoring. We've got a lot of questions. We're not going to cover them all. We'll come to um, these questions maybe during the after the show segment. Uh, here's a sort of a, uh, a look to the future question. What would DSM-5 say about bipolar disorder? Well, you know, uh, you can read about DSM-5 on, on a website, and it'll tell you exactly what's being contemplated. But keep in mind that the target date for DSM-5 is now 2013, and they still have to conduct field trials. Uh, I suspect 2013 is actually a bit ambitious. But you can get a glimpse of the future by looking at those criteria, and... Uh, Keep in mind, though, that today we have to deal with DSM-4 criteria, and that's where all the research is based on. And in order to interpret what you read, you're going to have to keep on thinking about DSM-4. But, Gary, what is the biggest controversy? 
you with know, DSM-5? You know, it, it's hard for me uh, to think about DSM-5 because, one, I don't know what they're going to do, but I do have a sense of, of what would be useful and not. A lot of the discussion around DSM-5 is suggesting for lots of other things to assess and monitor, and already we're not doing a very good job, so when we have more to do, I'm not sure we're going to do a better job. I do think that the term bipolar is useful, but I think it's, it's miscast among the mood disorders. I'd like to see a DSM-5 that had a category that we might call something like mood disorder vera, true mood disorder, meaning recurrent episodes. Half the patients with uh, unipolar depression have one and only one episode. We never say somebody has epilepsy when they've had one seizure. Half of that would go away if we just said it has to be recurrent. And then I would make a division of recurrent mood disorder, those that express abnormal highs and those that do not, realizing that both of those types may have a lot in common when we really see the genetics. Uh, A lot of times what leads to the expression of, of mania or hypomania could be something that is altogether different than the underlying pathophysiology. might have to do with diet and stressors, et cetera. But this underlying mood disorder, Vera, I think that's what Kreplin described, and I, I think we'll get back to that. Yeah. So you're describing maybe more sort of a, a centrality to recurrence or cyclicity as being a defining feature. Right. I think there really is a true mood disorder. I am struck by the fact that among identical twins, if one has bipolar disorder, yes, there's a higher rate of the second one having bipolar, but they have two and three times as, as much unipolar, unipolar depression. Sure. So I think that's the same disease. Gary, this is a, an opportunity for you to clarify or, and, and perhaps re, restate something that you mentioned earlier. One of our, our email questions is, I would like to confirm that Dr. Sachs stated that the efficacy of a medication trial in bipolar disorder can be determined in two weeks. Yes, there's excellent data here. Um, if you look, you will see... Um, from Joe Calabrese, a meta-analysis of the pivotal trials and looking at outcome uh, at a time as early as two weeks from an adequate dose and seeing that if the patient isn't at least 20% better, that has a very high predictive value that they will not be better at six or eight weeks. Conversely, being better at two weeks doesn't predict very much at all. So there is a high value to not getting better And if you're at that point with your patient, please either increase the dose if it's tolerable or go on to a different treatment. You know, it's a very hot topic in psychiatry today, the ability to predict future response based on a snapshot shortly after beginning treatment. And in schizophrenia, there's a similar research that tells us if you don't have a sufficient response at two weeks, you're not likely to get a robust response uh, six months down the line. And I don't know the definition of sufficient in terms of schizophrenia, but the idea we're talking about here, 20% or more improvement. Mm-hmm. If you don't have it, mm-hmm. you're not going to see it. That's where these rating scales, when you mention, Good can point. you do the young mania rating scale? Can you do the madras? Well, being able to quantify allows you to have this measure-based approach to treatment that otherwise you really can't get there. Yeah, and just to sort of bring this full circle to major depressive disorder, we now have good evidence that a, again, response at two weeks defined as 20% or greater improvement from your baseline HAMD-17 score is predictive of response at week eight. To your point earlier, Gary, the negative predictive value 
is stronger than the positive predictive value in major depressive disorder. Same with schizophrenia. Yeah. Yeah. So, again, if we're not seeing something at two weeks, it does not bode well. Maybe we can pick up this discussion during the After the Show segment. Unfortunately, we're out of time uh, for this part of the program. We do want to remind our audience about our After the Show segment, which I've made reference to several times, and we'll start that in approximately five minutes. Gary and Les, thank you uh, for your candid remarks and joining me for today's program. And we covered a lot of territory in a short period of time, and I do appreciate your, uh, the economy of uh, responses that you've brought to today's program. To our audience, please visit www.neuroscienceme.com, Bipolar, for more activities and information on bipolar disorder. And hope you're able to stay with us for our After the Show segments, which will begin in just a few minutes. I also want to let our audience know that an upcoming webcast is focused on epilepsy. Gary, you mentioned epilepsy just a few moments ago. An epilepsy program will be on on Wednesday, March the 24th. Please visit our website for more details. From all of us at Neuroscience CME Live and On Demand, I am Dr. Roger McIntyre thanking you for joining us today and encourage you to translate today's activity into improved care for the patients in your practice.